This morning, the Dynamic Master Part 2. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, we're going to give it our best shot to finish the chapter. I believe we can get it done without uh, skipping anything. So, The Lord here begins to do something that we don't see a lot of in our world here in America, but I, I have experienced this first little vignette myself. I've been involved in a couple of situations that I can honestly tell you um, was a person who was demon-possessed. And so uh, I want to make sure that before you dismiss it, that this behavior uh, still happens in our world today, and God is still the master of it. And so this morning, the Dynamic Master Part 2, and we'll pick up as the Guys, get in a boat and head to the other side of the lake. And so would you pray with me? Father, though sometimes we look at these extreme stories that are recounted in your word and we're tempted to wonder whether they were true. Lord, maybe some are doubting this morning that someone could be literally possessed of a demon. God, we realize that our world has a lot of demonic activity in it and Though we may not see this type of an environment in our day, in our time, this type of a disaster, Lord, certainly there are people who are terrorized and are terrorizers. And Lord, their minds are broken. Their brains are not functioning the way they should. They're overtaken. And we pray this morning that if there be anyone that came in this morning that perhaps are wondering if their problem is too great for you, Jesus, that they'd see this time this morning as you speaking to them. Lord, you're still the God of the diseased. You're the God of the oppressed, the broken. Lord, those who are tormented and those who are tormentors. And so, God, we give you this time. Pray that you would speak to us by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll see. I think there's a slide up there someplace. I think I'm good. We're having those tech one of those technical mornings. You know what? I'm just gonna start teaching. So if it comes up, let me know. <laughs> Verse 26 here in Luke 8. And then they sailed to the country of Gardanus, which is on the opposite shore of Galilee. And so they're in the area that is roughly the northern tip. That's Jesus' home base. That's where Capernaum is. And they're now going to sail east across to what would be the Jordanian side uh, of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Gardanus. And it's on the opposite shore. And when he stepped out onto land, that he being Jesus, he met a certain man. And it's interesting that that man was well known. It was not an accident in any way, shape, or form that Jesus bumps into this very deranged person. And he was a man from the city who had demons for a long time. And, and I want to put this in two different places for you. Whether... We in our world are seeing genuine demonic activity, which I believe still exists and happens. Or whether this is someone who's tormented of mind, their mind is broken, and they're terrorized by their state of mind. 
God is able to heal the most broken mind. And so he now begins to speak. And this this man had been like this for a lifetime. And I have literally seen people in this condition. As a matter of fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago that uh, we saw some folks down near the Staples Center that are obviously, their minds are broken. There's no excuse for them being in the middle of the street in a wheelchair or spinning donuts trying to act like a stoplight. Uh, their, their minds are broken. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And so you can kind of get the picture. This guy's about as far out as someone can get. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And so in this case, I have absolute confidence that this man was demon-possessed because of the way that he cries out and what is said. It's very clear what's happening here. And he said, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, for he was kept under guard. And it looks as though that's a previous condition, that literally the people of the town had tried chaining him up, that they had exercised all measure of attempting to deal with this man on a regular basis, including tying him up, chaining him up, and making sure he can't get loose. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him, that they being the demons themselves. And I would remind you that the author James made it very clear that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. And one of the things that we can draw from this, this passage of Scripture and several others is this. There are a lot of beings who know who Jesus is exactly and yet do not believe in Him. It is possible to know about Him and not believe in Him. And so he says, they begged Him that He would not command them to go out into the abyss. And now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, and so they begged Him that He would permit them to enter them. And He permitted them. Notice permitted. The Son of God is the only one that can make that permission. They were absolutely controlled by Jesus at this point in time. And then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine and ran the herd violently down a steep place into the lake and there they drowned. And then those who fed them, so now we're to the swine herders. They would have obviously been Gentiles, not Jews. Swine were unclean to the Jewish people. And so these are the people in that area who were Gentiles, who were herding swine. And they saw what had happened, and they fled and told in the city and in the country. And so they're in an area that is more likely than not inhabited by Gentiles. 
those Gentiles had a swine business, and in fact it seems as though that may have been the business of the area. In other words, there were a lot of swine herders, much like we have places where dairy farming is popular. If you go to Iowa today, you're going to find the same thing. There are all kinds of people who are engaged in, in the agricultural industry of raising pork. And so you'll find areas to where, uh, still to this day, to where there is a cluster of that type of industry, if you will. And when they went out to see what happened, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. And I love this word. It's, it's an interesting word because it literally means to be encompassed by, clothed in. He, he now is of a right state of mind. And it appears as though his reputation was such that he was known to not be in a right state of mind. And it would have been very clear whether he was in that previous state or any new state which would have been his right mind. And it may even indicate to us that some people had known him prior to him becoming demon-possessed. And so they, wow, this is the real guy. And they were afraid. Why were they afraid? It's a question there for us. And they also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. <laughs> like, look, there's this guy roaming around the countryside. Jesus has been primarily ministering to Jews, or at least in Jewish communities. He's now in a Gentile community. And the whole multitude of the surrounding region of Gardenes. And so you can see this is a new group of people. These are people who were not really all that familiar with what had been going. Maybe they had gotten word, but they had not seen it for themselves. And there's an important lesson here. The Lord is to us what we need. He comes with what we need when we need it. And so the whole multitude of the surrounding region, and they asked him to depart from them. Why would, he, why would they do that? And I think there's actually a very simple reason. He had just ruined their bacon business. <laughs> the swine are in the lake. They're floaters now. They're swimming. We don't know what happened to them exactly, but we know they perished. And so they're going, this guy's bad for business. And there's a little subtlety here that I think we can draw attention to. It's a pretty sad state of human affairs when mankind reaches the place to where they'd rather deal with demon-possessed people than have their business attacked. When they'd rather walk in darkness than maybe be right with the Lord and at the same time Maybe the business goes a little bit the opposite direction. For they were seized with great fear, and he got back into the boat, and he returned. And so this little short trip to the opposite shore. And now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for him. And so this first little story, and so I don't get confused, even if you get the PowerPoint up, don't you, we're not going to do it. So. 
So I'll never know where we're at. <laughs> so the saving of the terrorist. We've been plagued. This is like internet's down. You know, it's like we all came in this morning. It's like you get so attached, and this is one of my fears when we started doing these types of things, and you become attached to the technology. So pretend we have no PowerPoint right now, even though it might be up there. So our attention is drawn to this maniac. He terrorized the neighborhood. He was one of those guys that when women walked by on the street, their husbands ran ahead of them. This guy was the the town crazy. And he was well known to be that way. And yet he was broken. He was was absolutely, I believe, possessed of, of a demon. Multitudes of them, it appears. And he was at that point in time also depressed himself and oppressed himself. One of the things that we often forget when people are broken is that they themselves are victims. And sometimes I think we as pastors, and I know I as a pastor, forget that at times. There are times when, I, when you're dealing with brokenness, that there are, there are victims on all sides of almost every issue. And I don't mean to play the victim card. I'm not trying to draw attention to that part of it. But rather to say that when someone is broken, they create a string of brokenness. There are other broken people around them. There are terrorized people around them. And and what we often see is maybe just that one extreme example. But I can tell you from my, my multitude of hours counseling people, When someone's hurting, there's almost always somebody else who's hurting with them and for them and about them and to them and towards them. And and there's a whole community that ends up affected, much like this one. I think one of the great problems that we face today in our world is, is that which we can look back on and say, you know what, I don't know that we've done a great job of taking care of the broken. People whose minds are, are twisted. We see it in, in the news virtually every day. Right-minded people don't walk into schools and shoot children. Right-minded people don't walk into a movie theater and shoot innocent people. Right-minded people don't fly planes into the World Trade Center. Very often the terrorist is also terrorized. I believe that that is the case. That sometimes what you're really seeing is demonic activity carried out in our world. And I don't know that there's any other way to explain it. I know that there have been times when I've been called to scenes of tragedy and and you can't explain in a human sense why those things could have possibly happened. Why would a perfectly normal 17-year-old put a rope around his neck and hang himself? There's no answer for that. But I know the one who ultimately can deal with the aftermath, the grief, the horror, the pain, I know the one who can set people free so that they don't reach that place and his name is Jesus. And so in the surrounding countryside is these people lived in this area 
This, this terrorist himself was, I believe, terrorized. And we're forced in our world, in our day and time, to ask ourselves questions. And I think that to some degree we get engaged in that behavior too much. You know, how did that person get like that? You know, what was it that happened to them? I think sometimes in the process of doing that, we, we forget to actually minister. We're so busy working out the details of how things happened or why they happened that we forget that they simply need to be ministered to. They need to be touched. That God wants to use you to touch them. This guy had been in this condition for a very, very, very long time. And we can all, I don't know how many of you bump into the same guys all the time down there on Tippecanoe or, you know, one of the major intersections or Alabama at Redlands Boulevard. I literally see the same guys, sometimes the same ladies. It looks like they change the same, you know, they change signs. And, you know, one day, you know, I'm always struck by the the signs that are creative as, as, carnal as they may be, why lie, work for beer, you know, that type of thing. It, it looks like when that guy talks to somebody else, these are broken people. They're people who need Jesus. I want to really encourage you. One of the things that we do in our house is we keep a stack of Bibles or New Testaments and we'll put money or cards or whatever and I'll tell them about Jesus because He can fix their minds no matter why they got broken. And this guy, I believe, was actually demonically possessed. And so let's deal with that before we move on. Luke notes that this guy is completely out of control. He, he has no apparent awareness even of where he's at. And that is one of the more general signs. And so this man asks the demons inside of him, rather, what have we to do with you? And then they say, Son of the Most High God. As Mark records this, you get a few more instances of, of the understanding that literally these demonic hosts, these spirits, are talking to Jesus as if they know they're in trouble. And they know what he can do. And they know ultimately what he will do. Notice that they reference the abuso. They reference Sheol. They say, hey, don't toss us in there yet. Because that's where they're going one day. Sometimes we forget that our Savior is also the master of the entire world and everything on it and everyone on it. And no matter how ferocious these demonic hosts may get, one day he's going to tell them what is exactly going to happen to them and they're going to do it. And in fact, during the millennial reign, these same demonic hosts will be incarcerated there until the end of the millennial reign, and they'll be released for a short period of time along with Satan and finally cast into the lake of fire. So they know where they're going, and they know who Jesus is. And so they slander the Lord. They, they kind of make a, a mockery. Hey, I think they were expecting that end at that moment. But you know what? The Lord hadn't come to deal with them yet. He'd come to rescue that man. He'd come to save that soul for whom he would one day lay down his life. Jesus is the God of the humble. He's the God of the broken. He's the God of the tormented. 
And He can set anyone, anywhere, anytime free. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Including the ones that we look at and there is no hope for that person. And I think if we're honest, we'll all say that we've at least seen somebody about whom we might make that statement. Oh, that guy can't be reached. That woman can't be reached. She's way too far gone. He's just out of his mind. Can I tell you God's still able? Sometimes I wonder what would have befallen me had I not come to that place in my life of just going, Lord, it's, it's time. It's time to do business with You. You see, though this man was out of control, he was not out of reach. And that's the important part. He was not out of the reach of the Lord. And though he was demonically terrorized, and though as this story unfolds, he begins to you know, really show his power in this, I think the thing that we draw from it is don't underestimate the power of the Lord to reach anyone, anywhere, anytime whether they're broken because of their own actions, whether they're a terrorist because they grew up in a radical Muslim home, whether they're a terrorist because they don't care about people, whether they're a terrorist because they've broken their own mind with drugs, whether they're terrorizing people because they just have pent-up hatred and anger, or whether they're terrorizing people because they're just plain not nice. Christ can... Break through that terror. And he can reach that heart. In this case, there are some people watching and they lost their livelihood, lost their money. And yet at the same time, the Lord is telling this man, look, I saved you for a purpose. There's a reason that you now are whole. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to stay here and tell people about me. I don't want you to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. It'll be easier for you there because everybody here will have remembered what you were like before and you'll probably end up having to you know, answer for your past. Jesus was leaving that guy in a situation to where it was going to be pretty hard for him. He didn't set him free to make it easy. He set him free to use him. And so he said, stay here. Minister to your own people. I've taken care of the demonic host that's in you. Obviously from the name Legion, he's drawing attention to the Roman Legion. That would have been 6,000 if it were literally a legion of, of demons. We don't know. Was it a figurative name? Not sure. But I can tell you this. The man that was once severely broken was now whole and ready for use. Now they move to the back to hometown, basically. And in doing so, we pick up a very short but very poignant case where the Lord is once again going to raise the dead. And in so, He's going to deal with three very specific people. He's going to deal with a man, He's going to deal with a woman, and He's going to deal with a child. And in setting the stage for this final part, I want you to focus in just a little bit on a very specific detail that I think comes alive in this particular 
passage of Scripture. All of us, I think if we're honest, and with ourselves and with others, we have a tendency to kind of grade and then graduate the severity of things that we think the Lord ought to deal with. Amen? And usually number one on that list is guess who? You. We almost always put our own problems above everybody else's problems. Amen? If we're honest. Sometimes we can kind of slide over and we'll have, you know, think of somebody else first. But I think most of us look out for number one, so to speak. And in doing so, and again, I'm not pointing out a fault here. I'm just simply saying human nature being as it is, our hearts are wicked and desperately so. So we kind of even don't know ourselves sometimes. But I think if we're really honest, we look at our own problems. The things that are going on in your life, the things that are going on in my life, the things that, that we're personally going through, those generally are the things that we're most concerned with. That's not to say every time. Of course, there are some people that are deeply compassionate towards others. I think each of us can be also in that category. But usually, we look at our own stuff first. And so in doing so, I want you to see something here in this story. In the life of Jairus, you have somebody who's very, very, very important. He's the ruler of the synagogue. And so there is a human propensity, if you will, to look at people who have some form of stature or place on this earth, and we kind of almost think they're more important than other people. And of course, that's not true in the Lord's eyes. And so look at this next story in that light, because Jairus was probably wondering, are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? You're, you're going to take time while my daughter is dying to minister to her? And so it was when Jesus returned that a multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And this is kind of an interesting, kind of a funny scene almost. It's like Jesus has been doing all these things in the general vicinity of Capernaum. He gets in the boat, goes to the other shore, which is the Gentile shore, if you will. And he ministers there. And he makes a quick trip. may have been less than a day. We're not really sure. And he comes back. And there they are. He's back. What's he going to do next? And behold, there came a man named Jairus. And he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went in, the multitude thronged him. So put yourself in Jairus' place for just a moment. He's desperate. He's used to being in charge. He normally gets what he wants. He's important in the community. He is probably a man of some means, if not reasonably wealthy compared to the rest of the population. This is a guy who's not used to being told no. This is a guy who's used to getting his way, generally speaking. I don't want to overstate it, but simply to draw your attention, he was in the upper crust of society. He was the ruler of the synagogue. 
And so the Lord recrosses it. He bumps into Jairus as Jairus comes to him. And Jairus is likely thinking, someone as important as, important as me ought to be able to go to the head of the line. After all, I'm a ruler in the synagogue. They were normally selected for their good character, by the way. So he was likely a nice guy. He was very likely someone that people respected and looked up to. Because of his position, very often the actual synagogue itself would vote in who was the ruler of the synagogue. And so he was respected, well-liked. But he had exactly one daughter, and that daughter lay dying. And I want you to see the tenderness of, of the Lord here. And I think it's wonderful that Luke recounts this entire story uh, in such a way as to highlight the various people that are in it. From Jairus' perspective, there was exactly two people in the story that really mattered. He knew Jesus could do something spectacular, and he knew his daughter was dying. Now the truth of it all hits us. There's lots of people who are dying. And we're probably not the most important person on the planet. And very often God does what He does without consulting us. Amen? I don't know about you. God just doesn't dial me up and go, Gee, Jeff, what should I do? I mean, I've got all these things going on, and I, you know, I know that, I mean, you're the pastor of the church. I'll ask you what I should do next. God allows things into people's lives that just make me cry sometimes. Just hurts. God allows brokenness in people's marriages, sometimes through their own action, sometimes because they're broken. God allows children to do some pretty dumb things, go the wrong direction, and mom and dad don't know what to do. But I can tell you this, when I talk to mom and dad, the whole world has stopped with their kids. It's all they can see. And I sure don't blame them. But from God's perspective, He knows exactly which part to take first. And sometimes what He does, we don't like. Amen? I know I don't. Maybe... Maybe your life is untouched that way, but God does things in my life sometimes that I don't like. Matter of fact, I not only don't like Him, I completely disagree with Him. It's like, Lord, that's not... No, I can't... This is happening because of something else. This isn't me. And, and all the while, the Lord saying, No, Jeff, this is for you. God is always on time. His ways are always perfect. And family, if he can keep the sun up there where it belongs and the stars and the heavens and the planets circling the sun and he can keep all of us on this rock with a little bit of gravity, I'm pretty sure he knows which order to handle things in. But sometimes we forget that. And we start to get distracted by our own problems. In the same breath, the same story, the same time, now verse 43 says a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, and I don't want to belabor the point, but she's having a gynecological issue. She, she's got some issues with her reproductive processes. 
And so she has been miserable. And furthermore, she has been unclean for 12 years. She's been ostracized from society. Not necessarily hated, but certainly couldn't join in in all of the community events. She would not be able to be around. And so she was miserable. And furthermore, who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. She'd done everything humanly possible to be set free from this bondage. And it's interesting. You have a 12-year-old girl who's dying, and you have an older woman who's been 12 years with an absolute problem she can do nothing about. And she came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. It seems like kind of an odd story to us in our world. We're so used to seeking medical care and that medical care generally working that we often forget that in this day and time there were no specialists. You couldn't go down to the local you know, hospital and, well, we want you to go over here to gynecology or over here to oncology or over here to hematology or some ologist. There weren't any ologists okay, of any kind. There were physicians and they were relatively... Uh, poorly trained. You're, probably your average EMT today had more training than a doctor then. But this woman had done everything she could do. And all of a sudden, something that is not explainable really by any other thing than the Lord just simply touched her and healed her. Jesus said, who touched me? Ask a question. And again, I, I ask you the question, did Jesus need the information because he didn't know? And the answer, of course, is no. He, he knew who touched him. But the woman needed to express her faith. The woman needed to know that this was no fluke. The woman herself needed to confess with her lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who touched me? And when all denied it, which was the truth, none of them actually had. And then, of course, Peter speaking for the group. Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? It's like, come on, Master. I mean, you've probably been touched all kinds of times. What, you didn't feel that? Peter back to his practical self. And sometimes we do that, too. We make things too practical when, in fact, they've been miraculous. The Lord's worked in some amazing way, and we want to kind of chalk it up to, well, it's just life. Just circumstance, just happenstance. And when all denied, Peter said, Master, they were thronging around you. Of course someone touched you. Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out of me. And the reason he makes this distinction, and Luke records it, is this. If she had not touched him in faith, no power would have gone out. It wasn't just that she touched him. She touched him believing in him. And something happened. And it was real. For I perceived power going out of me, and now the woman saw that she was not hidden. Kind of the, <laughs> she's busted. Yep, I touched him, and I believed as I touched him. And it wasn't a bad thing. 
And she came trembling and falling down before him. You see, she was so used to being mistreated. She was so used to being ostracized. She was so used to being put down and looked down on and cast out and turned away that she didn't even know how to respond when all of a sudden, I'm healed. She was expecting Jesus and everybody else to do the same thing. And she declared Him in the presence of all the people. You can see faith at work here. The reason that she had touched Him and how she was healed. In other words, she expressed her touch of faith. She says, I believe that Jesus can heal me. And so she touched Him. And it says here that she literally came behind and touched the, the border of his garment on a, on a Hebrew tunic at that time, much like the Hebrew prayer shawl of today, the shalit. There would be four tassels, and they were normally oriented so that there were two in the back and two in the front. And they were not considered part of the garment. They were outside of the garment, so to speak. They were considered not to actually touch him. The reason she touched the tassel is that's the only part of him she could have touched and not make him unclean. So from a Jewish perspective, she's going, I'm not even going to touch him. I'm just going to touch. I, I believe who he is so much that I'll just touch a single tassel on his garment. That's faith. And he said to her daughter, Be of good cheer, for your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And all the time, as we wrap this up and get to the end here, all the time, can you imagine Jairus is over here? He's in the same room, same place. He's going, my daughter's dying. And you're taking time out right now for this? Anybody else ever had that experience? I'm dying, Lord, and you're taking time. Don't you see? I'm. This needs. You got to do this now for me because there's no tomorrow for me. And if you don't do what you need to do for me right now, I don't know that I'm going to survive. But the whole time, Jesus had it under control, didn't he? We're going to see that in the rest of the story. Jairus is thinking to himself, you've got to be kidding me. Twelve years of joy and laughter and delight for Jairus and his little girl, and twelve years of despair and embarrassment and pain and loneliness and suffering for that woman. So was Jesus even wrong from a human perspective when you look at it that way? Of course, he's God. He's perfect. He was right. Whether you're blessed or whether you're broken, the Lord knows exactly what you need. And he knows when you need it. He knows when I need it. And so Jesus responds to her. And he just makes her come forward so that she can know. There would be no confusion in this woman's life about what happened, would there? 
Who touched me? And she confesses with her mouth, It was me, Lord, and I'm healed. There would be no contesting who had done what had been done. She knew. And family, that's why it's important for us, and that's why Scripture says, Confess me before men, and I will confess you before my Father. That's why it says that. It's for you, really. God knows who are, who are His. But it's for you. It strengthens your faith. Causes you to be a little bolder the next time. And then finally, the third act here as we wrap this up this morning. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Jairus is with him. Now the servant comes. They've moved away. He says, look, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Nothing you can do about it. You waited too long. Impossible situation. Forget it. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe and she'll be made well. You see, from Jairus' position, he's probably got some serious angst going on. If you'd have just come when I asked you, if you'd just gone over to my house first, I mean, this lady's been struggling with this for 12 years. What's another 10 minutes? Isn't that how we think sometimes? And yet God does what God does for reasons unbeknownst to us very often. I've got a plan in all of this. She'll be made well. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the girl. And now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. From your perspective, she looks dead. From my perspective, she's sleeping. Like Paul said, for those who are asleep in Christ. Because to sleep in Christ is to be really alive in heaven. Amen? And they ridiculed him. And they began to say what all of us would say. Man, you, you've been doing too much healing. You, you need to go rest or something. You get a little bit better sleep because you've you got like a Messiah complex here. This girl's dead. It's back to the same thing. Knowing that she was dead. And he put them all outside and he took the little girl by the hand and called saying, little girl, arise. He uses an Aramaic phrase, Talitha Kume. Little lamb, get up is actually what it means. Get up. Your life's not over. Jairus, here's your daughter. And her spirit returned and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat, and her parents were astonished. But he charged them all to tell no one what had happened. Kind of a funny thing to say. He told the demon-possessed guy who'd been healed to stay in his own community and yak it up. Amen? And here, seemingly, an even greater miracle occurs. He says, you know, don't, don't tell anybody. Stay home. There's another little lesson here. God does what He does for reasons that He alone knows, and He also uses what He does when it's His time. I can tell you a lot of times, especially in dealing with Bible college students, that you know they graduate from Bible college, they're ready to pastor a church at 21 years old or whatever. 
lots of zeal, but they need a little more tempering, a little more knowledge. God knows what to do in every stage of our life while we're here on this earth. And He knows best how to use the things that He allows in our lives. And so whether you're emotionally sick or mentally disturbed or physically dead or physically sick, the Lord knows what to do. And He is the dynamic Master. And He says something very beautiful. He says, believe only. He says, look, it boils down to you believing that I am who I am. That's a struggle for us sometimes. The professional mourners in this story thought they had it nailed, you know. Look, we've been to a lot of funerals. She's dead. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't leave you dead? Didn't leave. I'm glad He didn't leave me dead. Maybe some of you are not glad that He didn't leave me dead, but I'm alive in Christ. <laughs> and He who has been made alive is alive indeed. Amen? God knows what He's doing. Even when we don't know what He's doing, He knows what He's doing. And what He does, He does because He is good. And He loves us. And He knows exactly when to do it and what to do with it once He's finished. And so whether it's a terrorist or someone who's tormented or someone who's terminal, we just let the Lord have our problems, our issues, our cares, our concerns and recognize that He can take care of anything, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And when He does, there's going to be a blessing that follows. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for these people, for your church. Thank you for my family, Lord. Thank you for this nation. How we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. And we want to be thankful in those areas of life that are tougher to thank you for, Lord. Thank you for the things that we go through that sometimes we don't understand. Lord, but we trust you. Lord, we want to be like this woman who believed and was healed. We want to be like this little child who was raised up. Lord, we want to be like this man whose mind was broken and then made whole. We want to walk by faith and not by sight. And so, God, we just give you our lives. Lord, we want to put our issues in your to-do box. Lord, in your giant filing system in the heavens where you get the things in your perfect timing and you act on them according to your plans and purposes. Lord, give us more faith. Cause us to walk. We praise you. We bless you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.